Hey, welcome back to part two. <laughs> so natural. <Okay>. So <laughs> natural. <laughs> so we we actually don't remember where we left off, so we're just going to uh, jump in onto the next thing, right? Yeah. Producer's but, fault. But it was it was still about finding the right. I mean, we talked about finding the right therapist mm-hmm. in the first one. Now we're really talking about finding the right therapy. Uh, there's a lot of different things, and and I was thinking about it kind of like if you've ever been to a mechanics shop. I mean, they don't have just one tool. They have a lot of different tools depending on what they have to fix. Right. I mean, yeah. can we think of therapy? No, that's a great analogy. Way. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. That's a great analogy, Jared. At least yeah. Pat will understand that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's more than one tool for sure. So we've talked about all the different therapies, and one thing you'd said at near the beginning of the last episode was uh, meaning for the trauma, meaning after you go through kind of or right. middle of EMDR. So um, if you don't mind, go ahead and explain the meaning and what that process kind of so entails. I'll kind of go back to where I where I kind of grabbed that from. So in talking about all research is me search, mm-hmm. um, I'm a huge fan of Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist. He were, he was a student of Sigmund Freud's. I don't hold that against him. Freud was a weirdo, right? <laughs> we know that now. But Viktor Frankl was a Jew that was interned in the concentration camps, and he got out and wrote a book called A Man's Search for Meaning. While he was in the concentration camps, he lost his whole family. And one of the things that he talks about in the book at the end is that the people who survived had something to look forward to, something that gave them hope, something in life that was meaningful. And he talks a lot about that in, in a lot of the books that he wrote. In fact, he was still writing um, on his deathbed when he passed away. He was still writing a book. Mm-hmm. Um, but so what in life gives us meaning? In two ways, right? What gives us meaning to the things that happen to us? And what do we need moving forward? Because they're two different things, right? And can we put those together? So in any therapy um, follow-up, it's my opinion that there should be some kind of follow-up to whatever therapy treatment you're getting, um, except for maybe medication, because that's a whole different deal, right? But what what happened to me in the past, and how does that give me meaning now? And how can I use those bad things moving forward, right? What can I do maybe to help somebody else or to do something that gives me meaning? And it doesn't mean that I have to do something that is directly related to the crappy thing that happened to me, right? Sometimes that's the way it works. That's how it worked for me. But for somebody else, it might be, okay, this bad thing happened. But moving forward in life, what are those things that are important to me that have meaning, right? And it might be something as simple as, okay, I have a job I hate. I don't like going, working in this factory or whatever, but I do something at church or I help coach football. And that's important for me because I can have an impact there. Those things that that are impactful to others, I think, are really the components that give us meaning in some way. And I think that's an important thing that sometimes gets missed and overlooked. I just think it's important. So let's kind of break it down a little bit farther. You have somebody that goes through a tragic accident. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, maybe nobody's killed. Maybe somebody's killed, whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. And they want to find meaning in that accident. There might not be meaning in that accident. There might be. Like, there might be something there. There might not be, too. But 
after processing whatever that event was, what gives them meaning moving forward? I can give you an example of that. Okay. So um, I've actually worked with a client that had a really bad accident. Nobody was killed. She struggled with that accident so much so she couldn't drive. Hmm. It was really difficult for her to drive, especially on the highway, because hmm. that's where this happened. Basically, her car was run over by a semi. Ooh. Yeah. So we processed that. She can drive now. She's getting better. She can even drive on the highway. She only gets a little freaked out when she's next to a semi, which, you know, that's pretty right. normal. We all kind of do a little bit, right? So she's doing really well. But so there's no meaning in that other than I'm better now. What can I do moving forward, right? One of the things I like to say in therapy is um, the rearview mirror and the windshields. The rearview mirror is smaller than the windshield for a reason, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's important that we be able to look back. But looking forward is the deal, right? We have to keep moving forward. So in that, what is that for her? What does it look like? And then exploring all those options, right? I'm not going to let this thing stop me from living my life. I'm going to fix it and move forward. So what in the future gives me meaning? Because we know through Viktor Frankl's experience that that is the component that keeps us moving, that gives us hope for the future. Well, and I think, you know, that's that's overall the question of life. Why are we here? Right. And, and yeah, Viktor Frankl was an existentialist. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So... You know, as we walk through this thing called life, and we celebrate it, the Prince knockout over here. Um, uh, Wasn't gonna say anything. That's all right. Hey, he's he was uh, one of the few musicians that was. My sister loved him. Bless her heart and rest her spirit. But you know, music for what thirty eight years and never had one scandal. Anyway. Oh, okay. All right. And he was awesome in purple. But. Uh, <laughs> You know, that's a that's a meaning, you know, that's that's why a question we all ask ourselves. Why right. are we here? And, you know, when you said earlier, why, you know, what from the accident, what why why was that? You know, well, my cop brain says it was a collision, not an accident. But anyway, uh, you know, we have to acknowledge that we get better when we go through the shitty things in life. You have two options. Right. And the only thing you can control is you. So right. you have two options. Things are going to get shitty or things are going to get better. Yep. And when we look for purpose or meaning, you still have those same options. You can say, I don't know why it happened and I, you know, why has it got to happen to me and, and so on and so forth. Or you can say, hey, I came out of that alive. Um, now, how can I take this and help, move, help others moving forward? That's kind of what we did with our stuff, with our baggage, with this podcast. You know, how can we take our experiences, and even you too, Todd, how can we take our experiences and put it forward? Not saying that everyone's got to start their own show or things like that. Right. Yeah, we don't but, need that much competition. Right. right. <laughs> we're barely treading water here. Uh, you know, but... And we're in a weighty pool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, but it's it's that that, uh, you know, you come across others, whether it be in a factory or your day-to-day -day life or your church, that you're going to be able to input in their life, your experiences, and you know what you had went through and endured, and how you overcame, and I think that that's the thing people overlook is the success and and of overcoming. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. 
So in my last podcast, because I before we started the show, I told you guys I got a big listenership in India. Mm-hmm. So I started a, a series, and I'm doing um, sheepdogs from countries that listen to me. And one of the so in India, I did some research. Let me look at who the sheepdogs are in India, because I got no clue, right? Sure. I definitely can't pronounce their names, right? right? I'm like, and I apologize like 20 times on the podcast. But one of the guys I found was really interesting. He had seen a friend of his pass away at a, at a collision, right? Okay. At an accident. Guy just bleeds out. Best friend dies. Mm. So, and I don't know the whole story about India, like how fast the ambulances get there, if they ever do, like right. any of that. But it looks like it takes them a while. So he decides, next time at an accident, I'm not going to let this happen. So now, this dude has saved 60 people. Oh, wow. He scoops them up throws him in his car and drives him to the hospital himself. Wow. Right? That's a big deal. Sure. That's a huge deal. I don't know if we could do that here because of liability. Everybody's always right. worried about getting sued and all that bullshit, right? But, man, that's 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 something, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just it's finding meaning in the crappy things that happen to us and how can we affect life in a different way and make things mm-hmm. better. I right. And sometimes it's really tiny things. Like... The person I was talking about on the other show that had been in that car accident when he was 16, um, part of that story was he, after he had this accident happen, he's sitting on the curb, right? And just like, you can imagine, this, mm. he had a stranger walk up to him. She put her arm around him and said, it's going to be okay. That simple act probably right. kept that young man alive. Mm-hmm. That simple act, right? So sometimes it's those small, tiny things that we don't realize have some of the biggest impact mm-hmm. on people. Yeah. Man, I can't. You got nothing? Just to go through mm-hmm. that, that process, I'm trying to kind of put my mind in the, you know, what would happen if that, at that young of an age and to be brought through this. And really it's through our traumas that led us to where we're at now. Right. And yeah. I'm, I'm not saying everybody's got to become a counselor right. or be a peer support person sure. at the department or whatever, but man, there's, and to your point, John, there's, there's some bigger questions about life that are important. Mm-hmm. And what has, what gives us purpose and meaning? What is it? Why are we here? Right. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? And on the other side of that, you don't have to go through a trauma to be a therapist either. No, absolutely I not. Mean, that's one thing. Like I've talked to so many in this field. Well, I can't work with veterans because I've never been there. I'm like, well, you work with sexual assault victims. Have you ever been sexually assaulted? Well, no. It's the same thing. We just need right. somebody. I mean, yeah, it's. I've seen the difference. Um, yeah, there's a difference there. A little bit, and I'll tell you a story. So I don't know if you guys listen to my podcast with Steve Jascott, but Jascott's a, a medical trainer down by me. I did an interview with him, and he was involved in, no, he wasn't involved in it. He heard it from the guys that were there. So the plane crash on I-94. Okay. Oh. Um, all the first responders go out. Everybody in the plane crash is dead. They bring in a bunch of people to counsel them. It didn't go well. Oh, no. <laughs> As it usually doesn't. Right. So the 
first responders having the dark sense of humor that they do, um, they made it a game to see who could get the counselors to cry the most. I've, I've never, <laughs> never. I right. So there's some. Plead the fifth on that. There's there's a little bit of of truth in what you're saying. On the flip side of that is. I think people do want to talk to people who have some kind of life experience. Credibility. Yeah, some mm-hmm. kind of cred. Yeah. So, yeah, on the, on the opposite side of that is that kind of, that whole dark humor kind of... Don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it becomes an interesting, an interesting conversation when you start to look at like those things. But that goes to picking your therapist, right? Like yep. pick right. somebody you're comfortable with. If you don't think they have experience and they're not going to help you, don't pick them. <laughs> yeah. Right? Pick somebody else. Yeah, cuz you know, if if the dark sense of humor is just a coping mechanism. Absolutely. You know, and if you if you pick a therapist that that is I don't want to say black and white, but they don't understand that, yeah, you're probably going somewhere for 72 hours. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's possible. <laughs> You know, and, uh, you know, and that, again, goes to credibility. You know, I, I want to talk to somebody that has either been there, done that, or is familiar with the been there, done that. Yes, absolutely. It makes it easier. It, it, it comes to that point where you're, well, and part of it is they are more comfortable telling you something because you've been there and done that, and whatever they tell you is not going to surprise or shock you. Right. So I had somebody come into my office and said, I came to see you because I knew and heard you've been through a bunch of shit and you can handle what I'm about to tell you. Okay, bring it. What do you got? Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, So, yeah, it it helps to have some some experience, but that just goes to picking your person. Like you could go to somebody that doesn't have all that experience. If you're comfortable with them and they're comfortable with you. That therapeutic relationship is the most important part. Right. Just knowing you have a safe place to go and talk. Absolutely. Um, one thing I was just thinking about, EMDR, you say it brings up a lot of the trauma. Yep. What about somebody who maybe in the past has struggled with or is currently struggling with uh, suicide? Oh, so suicidal ideation. So... The way I handle that, because we everybody, I, I swear to God, I think like ninety percent of the population has thought at some point, ah, this sucks. I don't want to be here. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. That's suicidal ideation. So instead of talking about, oh, we're gonna have to lock you up. Right. No, let's talk about it. Like, how come you had those thoughts? Why did you have those thoughts? And I'm straight up with people, and I ask them, okay, why didn't you do it? Right. How come? Mm-hmm. Okay, I didn't do it because of my kids. All right, there's something to hold on to, right? Right. Or because of this or that or my dog or my cat or I still got to mow my lawn. I don't know what what the hell it is, right? But there's some reason you didn't do it. Just having those thoughts doesn't make you mentally ill, right? Right. Lots of people have those thoughts. But let's talk about it and let's get healthy so you don't have them as often, Mm -hmm. right? You know, and that goes to, you know, tag going back to your career and as well as anybody else that's a first responder, that's part of the just communication, you know, that when we deal with complete strangers, you know, when we get called to someone that's having suicidal thoughts or, you know, thoughts of harming themselves, you know, we don't just rush in and, you know, send them to the hospital for the psych eval. Mm -hmm. 
ask them why, you know, and, and there are people that, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, that you know are going to do it. Yeah. You, you know damn well they're serious. Yeah. They're going to they're gonna do it. Um, but, you know, when you, when you do this job for a while, you, you start to realize people aren't going to do it, and you can either ignore it or help them, and, and this is how you build their trust and ask them, well, why didn't you do it today? And, and 90% of the answers are going to be, well, my kids. Perfect. What's their names? How old are they? You know, and that's how you start to gain their trust and build that trust. And, you know, and, and you can kind of work it to where they realize they need help, you know, and, and that's important. You know, some of the best people that I've worked with building that rapport with, with a client is the EMS people, right? Mm-hmm. The true medical first responders, they, you know, they get the, the grimy, you know, when you go from handling someone's, you know, urine and feces and everything else, and you're not even batting an eye and, you know, you're still able to ca- carry on a conversation, that's a special person. You know, cops, we want in, we want out. Type the report, we're done, we're gone. This isn't a cop problem. Even, you know, there are many cops that say suicide's not a crime. Don't call me. Not my problem. Call EMS. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we got to build that trust. We got to open the communications to realize, like you said, it's it, it doesn't mean you're mentally ill. Right. Especially with this pandemic that we're in. You know, we, we're just hit a year of this pandemic and you know people have lost jobs people have lost homes people have been displaced we've got to have this open conversation people are at their wits end oh for sure John. you know yeah. and how do you you know how do you get them away from that well they're not the only ones don't minimize their problems but acknowledge that you understand them right Right. Well, and sometimes in dealing with any kind of anxiety, coming up with a plan sometimes helps alleviate the anxiety, right? So let's sit down with a piece of paper and let's come up with a plan, right? Sure. You lost your job. Okay, let's find you a new one, right? The rearview mirror is smaller than the windshield for a reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that analogy. Yeah. I may have to steal that one. You can have it. Confidential. <laughs> I don't know where I got it, so I stole it from somebody else. I've never had an original thought in my brain, so... Everything I got, I stole. <laughs> Some of that me search. <laughs> me search. Yep, that's that me search. <laughs> Might be stealing that one too. I like that. Right. Because <laughs> that's the one thing that a lot of people, when they think of trauma, they think of suicide. And just because you know, you want it to stop. Right. And that's why I was kind of excited to do this because your view with EMDR and being able to talk about it, not in a client or therapist setting is able to get out there so people know hey i can i can make a call this is what i do and that's why i want we went through the steps last time and it's just one of those things where it's okay to have trauma i mean most of the trauma we we have was done to us yeah absolutely i mean it's not like you woke up one day and says well you know i'm gonna I'm going to go do something. Yeah. I'm going <laughs> to right, no. run into a tree and see how that feels today. No, you know, it's icy, you know. I've had, you know, a, lot, a couple of years ago, I had a rollover accident that put me down for a while. And, you know, I go by that ditch. It was the ones down by Bach. Okay. Yeah. The big ones. Yeah. Um, they're 15, 20 feet. Oh, at least 20. At least 20 feet down. And my truck decided that's where it wanted to park itself. 
I had no, there's nothing I could do. I was driving right. for conditions and just happened. Um, what? He wants just, to say, he wants to right. say there was 20 cars before you that didn't go down the ditch. You must have been going too fast. Recently recounting all of his traffic crashes and <laughs> oh, collisions. Right. And I'm thinking to myself, there's a reason beer. I drove today. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what about the in, tree that fell down in, in, in front, front of you? In front of you. Yeah, okay. Uh-huh. Right. That's what the break is for. <laughs> <laughs> I could have tried to beat it, but no. Uh, I've had one car deer accident, and that's it. A lot of nears, misses, but... I'll have to go back through my messages, because it sure seems like there's more. Right. <laughs> there's more I came up on. <laughs> but, um, yeah, now I lost where I was going. Where was I going with Perfect. that? No. <laughs> um, but, no, you... you we don't wake see. up in the morning. Don't wake yeah, up in the we morning wake up thinking the morning we're going to... Thanks, yeah. John. <laughs> right. <laughs> we don't wake up in the morning to go search for trauma. So a lot of it, you you have to realize, I didn't do this to myself. Right. Um, or, you know, you could go through and say, well, like your call that you discussed a, a while back was, um, yes, I see your, your signals there, cheerleader. That's, <laughs> that's your new nickname. Um <clears throat> But you go back to that, you know, yeah, you could have done, should have done, but we have to stop and realize these are the facts of the case. We have to deal with what happened, not what we could have or should have done. Mm-hmm. And that's what I like with the bilateral stimulation, picking up new terms all the time. Um, you know, it, it, we don't know why it works, it just works. But the fact that you have that safe place and you said the first step of that process is to make a compartment or build a compartment for it to go in. Can you explain right. that one a little bit more? Sure. So there's some resources that we talk about that you can use inside your mind. One of those is a compartment to put things. So I might say, John, think of something you can put thoughts into, lock them up, and put them away and not deal with them. And whatever image pops into that person's head, um, sometimes it's Tupperware, sometimes it's a safe, sometimes it's a mason jar, whatever, mm-hmm. right? So then we use the bilateral stimulation in a way to make that deeper inside your imagination, basically. Um, and then you, and then I'll have them practice using that container for the next week or two to practice putting things in it so that when we do the process, if we don't get through it in two hours or an hour and a half and you still have stuff remaining, we can take that remaining stuff and put it in the container and not have to deal okay. with it. We can pull it out later, right? Okay. But having you practice it. So there's container. We do um, a calm space, something inside your head, a place you can go that is like you can go whenever there wherever you want. Nothing can mess with you. Like when you're there, you're there. Like it's a good place. Um, and then we do a couple of other figures, like a nurturing protector kind of intuitive self mm-hmm. stuff that also is really beneficial. All of those resources are really beneficial. We have those all in place before we do any of the processing. And then we can use those in processing if we need to. So in in training how to do EMDR, I was working with somebody who the trauma, when we don't do like really horrible traumas when you do the training, you do like lower level stuff. So he had been... So you don't want the people who are training to kind of flip out in the exactly training. right okay Got it. right exactly <laughs> so the trauma he was working on was a really bad fight when he was a kid he got beat up by a couple of kids um he used the protector figure 
because he couldn't, he got stuck. He couldn't get out of there, right? So he, his protector figure was a, was a horse actually. So he had the See horse come in. See, right. He had the horse come <laughs> in, and he jumped on the horse, and that's how he got away. And then he changed the negative cognition to a positive cognition, and that's how he kind of dealt with that by changing that, that image. And I've I've been able to do that with other people and and some negative images too. You just change the image a little bit. Um, and sometimes it's not a big thing like a horse, but something small, like just the way something looks. We could get you a protector guinea pig. Yeah, <laughs> you could use a guinea pig. You can eat those too. No comment. My, my daughter might listen to this. <laughs> but sometimes people will say, especially guys, especially guys in the first responder military, they're like, you want me to what? <laughs> what are we doing? This is bullshit, yeah. right? This right. is some kind of fruity, hippie shit, right? No, it's real and it works. You just got to trust me. Go with the program. It's going to be good, right? Mm-hmm. And but we have to put those in place first. And the important thing to know, and I like how you put it in there, you have to practice it. Yes. You didn't learn uh, to ride your bike the first time. Right. You, know, you didn't hit bullseye with your first mag every round I of did. ever going out. You know, I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're Air Force. I know that ain't true. Um, <laughs> and you, you know, you've got to practice it. It's not always going to work, and that's where it comes into owning your own trauma. That's where it comes into being able to separate the trauma that's not yours, and then you realize that you've used that trauma to identify. So it's kind of ingrained in you, and that makes it even more difficult. On that, right? And you all right over there? Yeah, I'm fine. COVID. Yeah, <laughs> get the Rona. And it's <laughs> and it's just it's the biggest thing that I've seen in my own life. Even is struggling with you know the trauma that I've hated for so long. It's also what I identify by. Mm-hmm. Police officers identify by badge and gun. Veterans identify by name, rank, serial number kind of thing. Yeah. Jared identifies by his beard. Um, it's, I'm it's, trying to get that it's, beard. It's grown on me. <laughs> it, it is grown on you. It's a good beard, dude. I got to tell you. Thank you. Yeah. More importantly, is it, it. no, I won't, I won't go there. <laughs> um, <laughs> there is a couple beard companies out there here that sponsor podcasts. We may have to reach out to them. Right. There, there is a veteran-owned one that... Uh, that I will be buying stuff from soon, so maybe I'll be like, "Hey, by the way, yeah, there you go." <laughs> Special notes: uh, I have a podcast, <laughs> but I'm the only one with a beard, and all I do is stare, so you can really see that beard. <laughs> I would have a beard if I could, right? But I can't. Yeah, I would have a beard if my wife let me. But it's between the beard or the couch, and I was gonna say it's your face, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. You ain't gotta look at it. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, she has to. And yeah, anyways, um, but you're not going to the first time. You're not going to get it right. Don't get frustrated at that. No, keep after it. I I work a lot with some process addictions, right? Um, I tell all of them never quit quitting. Right? Keep working on it. Keep working on it. Keep working on it. Don't quit quitting. Some of this stuff is hard. Right. A lot of things we talk about are simple. That does not mean they're easy. They're really difficult. Right. Like right. I'll, we'll talk about something that sounds really simple and you'll be like, okay, 
this is going to be easy. No, no, no. Let's not conflate the two, right? Right. Just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. Because somebody tried to explain to me one time at a training I was at that trauma is like a tree. You just got to uproot that tree. And I'm like, I don't really think so. Trauma is more of a vine. You know, you deal with it here. It's going to pop up over here. It's not going to stay in one place and grow. It likes right. to spread and, and right, wrap what, around. Right. It's what? And wrap around. And wrap around. Yes, exactly. And it will show up in places in your life. You're like, no, that's not trauma-based. It absolutely oh, is. Absolutely. IBS is a great one. Irritable bowel syndrome. Lots of guys and females that have trauma suffer with psychophysiological symptoms mm-hmm. all the time. I mean, personally, I had it. IBS absolutely was a was because of post traumatic stress injury, hundred percent. And it's it's one of those things that, like you know, you, you hear it most. The most common one that I hear is anger outbursts. Oh yeah. And oh well, my child uh, spilt something, and and they know better, and they know this. That's why I responded the way I did. Well, no. You responded the way you did because you were already on high alert because of something that happened earlier that day or the day before, or maybe it's an anniversary date. And so you've realizing that the trauma affects every part of your life is just as important as realizing you need help, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and understanding that you're in a battle with your brain. Right. So once once you do the psychoeducational part and you understand what happens to the amygdala and how it gets fired. Right. Like and anything can set it off. And sometimes we don't even know what it is. But once you understand that you're in a battle with your brain, then you can start to fight it. Right. Until you realize that you're just letting it do whatever it wants and you're not your brain. I know it sounds weird, but it's true. Sure. You know, and one of the things we, when you talk about kind of self-awareness and, and triggering points and hypervigilance, you know, when the whole mask mandate started, I absolutely hated it, right? Part, part of it was it was easy just to play it off as this is dumb, I don't believe it, you're infringing on my rights. But then when you start looking at why, right? I mean, all those reasons some people are going to say are valid. But for me personally, it was like, well, it's, it's bullshit, right? What, what's really the problem? Well... As a cop, I read people. When you're now covering 60% of your face, my hypervigilance is through the roof. It drives me nuts. Yep. You know, um, when you when you deal with drunks or, or druggies, you, you look at their eyes anyway. The yep. eyes are the gateway to the soul. They're, they're the only thing that's directly connected to the brain. So when they look disconnected, <laughs> they're gone. There's no connection there, okay? And But anybody else, when I can't see their face, you don't know necessarily what their intentions are. You don't see the clenched cheeks anymore. You don't see maybe a friendly smile. All you see now is a potential threat. So as I started to realize that, it was like, okay, all right, now you find yourself... In the store, I'm already hypervigilant anyway, normally, yep, yep. but now I got people coming up behind me uh, with a mask on. That freaks you the hell out. Right. Or in the bank, where it just doesn't right. even feel freaking natural to have a mask. Right. Right. You know? Um, right. And these are all things that, you know, earlier what you said in the last show is, you know, you're kind of looking into the psychological effects of these maskings, the masking and mandates. And that's something I think a lot of people are overlooking. Number one, it's 
you know, yeah, sure, it's hard to breathe in some of them. That's enough for some people to, to have anxiety. Absolutely. But, you know, for others that have trust issues or anxiety or hypervigilance. Mm-hmm. There's more to the story, though, John. There's a lot more to the story. So I'm going to give you guys the my next podcast, or a couple of them are going to be on this very topic. Okay. You heard it um, first here. So, <laughs> Well, it depends on how fast I get these well, put on. Yeah, right. So psychologist named Troika did some experiments called the still face experiments, which you might be aware of, Dustin. So what he did was uh, trying to understand, I think they were done in the 80s, trying to understand the the growth of kids when they have a depressive parent or a parent with borderline personality disorder. Because we know there's a connection there. Um, So what he would do is he'd put a small child in front of the mom. Mom's playing with baby, right? And baby's Googling, gaga and playing. Mom turns around. When she turns back, she never makes an expression. She doesn't do anything, mm-hmm. right? Baby freaks out. He just loses it, right? Trying to get her attention, loses it. And eventually starts to do something that changes his behavior, right? So we know, and that could be anything. That could be self-soothing. That could be just losing it. I mean, they just... But we know brain connections are made with that facial recognition with mom, right? Mm-hmm. So then he does the experiment with dad. Same thing. Grandparents, same thing. So I started thinking about, okay, because I'm watching kids in stores being pushed around in strollers, right? Everybody's got a mask on. Babies in the strollers like looking around like they're staring at zombies like, what the hell? Right. So... There's a bigger connection. Now, Stephen Porges wrote a book called The Polyvigal Theory. The Polyvigal Theory, um, it was a 30-year study on the vagus nerve. Um, You should read it. It's really good, but it's really complex. So anybody that's not in the field, you'll be like, oh, this sucks. (laughs) Right? But what it is... in the field probably still thinks that, but at the end, it's interesting. (laughs) It's really, it's super complex. But basically what he says in a nutshell is that the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system are what we always thought balanced each other, right? But that's not the whole story. The vagus nerve has something to do with that, and it's got to do with facial connections and social engagement, right? It's got to do with social engagement. So imagine something stressful happens, right, up here. Normally, have you? Have, I don't know if you guys have ever read um, "Emotional Survival to Law Enforcement." Mm-hmm. Okay, so what he says is something stressful happens at work. You get home and you crash. Right? You sit on the couch. You watch Correct. TV. You don't do anything. Right? Correct. Well, polyvagal theory says the same thing. That can occur, or you can have social engagement. Social engagement will stop the crash from kind of happening. Right? Okay. And social engagement is really important. So I think. That what is happening is we're seeing social engagement pulled apart because we're distancing ourselves from each other mm-hmm. on top of not being able to see social facial cues, mm-hmm. right? And it's going to create a bigger problem than we even know that exists. Like I can see in five or ten years a big issue with kids specifically, younger ones, not being able to understand or regulate emotion because of this whole mask crap that's going on. Now, parents that engage with their kids are going to have better 
you know, better understanding sure. and the kids are going to be better brain synapsis wise than those without. But, and think about it this way, Dustin, too, when you're in combat, right, or something stressful is going on, mm-hmm. after that occurs, what do you do? You get together with your guys. There's right. social engagement and connection, and that connection is really tight. And I think that's because of the vagus nerve, because that we need that. Our bodies are wired for that. So this whole mask thing and this whole mess is going to create a problem that we don't even know what's don't coming. Even understand. The unintended consequences of this are going to be huge. Ramifications are going to be and huge. I agree with that wholeheartedly. It's something that I've thought about because... You know, you talk about the kids not recognizing their parents. My son is notorious for this. I can be just sitting there and, and just blank-faced, Dad, what's wrong? Yeah, that's so, a great example of Nothing. That. Why? Well, you just look like you're upset. <laughs> no. Like, no, nah, I'm reading a book. Right. You know? But it's just that emotionless stare mm-hmm. that my son is completely like, what's wrong? You all right? You know, and it's normally me asking him, like, you good? You know? And right. it's, you know, uh, you know, he's a teenager. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think I think I absolutely agree that there's kids that, you know, we're kind of in the zombie apocalypse. Yeah. You know, uh, we think of dead people walking around, you know, like, you know, the walking dead. But, you know, uh, no, we're we're faceless beings walking around, expo- you know, showing right. no emotion. Right. It's kind of like the Twilight Zone. Yeah. I mean, you it know, is. And, and these kids are going to have to learn how to uh, it's almost like st- taking a step back uh for the human race, if you will, you right. know, of how to how we made that connection of reading people. Yeah. Well, and I'm I'm on one hand, I'm really hopeful that the brain can make the synapses connections later on. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I'm scared to death that it won't. Right. Sure. That there are some kids that are going to struggle with that. I mean, I see it in in some teenagers that I counsel. Right. Like they're just super horrible stay in the house not go out i'm never gonna leave i'm scared to death i'm depressed i'm anxious all this stuff about the second time they're finally hanging out with their friends they're like no i'm good right like okay there's a connection there it's really that, important that's kind of been happening before this happened as well i mean as the screen usage goes up and the ease of the internet and and you can mm-hmm. tell the the social the former social engagements even for teenagers have gone down. Bowling alleys yep. have, were having a difficult time before this. Movie theaters, believe it or not, were actually are actually having a difficult time mm-hmm. before this. The uh, the illegal beer sales for teenagers going out to bonfires has been suffering before this. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, it says so, suffering. <laughs> right. 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 He's lobbyist now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> For illegal beer sales for teenagers. <laughs> yeah. That's, you, that's been, my lobby. you would have been great in the 1920s. Right. <laughs> Matt is going to love you. <laughs> we just lost some viewers. <laughs> yeah, but we may have gained some others. Addition right. by subtraction, yeah. right? Right. Um, yeah. But, but no, I mean, that that's, I mean, I know that there's already been studies about screen usage and, and the way that people are socializing differently now, mm-hmm. pre-COVID, and now just it's going to be expanded. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's, I, in my humble opinion, it's not a good thing. People need to be with people. It's the way we're Mm, wired. We're herd mentality. Yeah, it's the way we're wired. Even the people that are true introverts are like, yeah, I'm an introvert, but eh, I need to, I need to be, I need to be with some people. Right. They get it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I don't want to be with people. I just want to be with my people. <laughs> right, yeah, right. That's true. Yeah, yeah. true you story. <laughs> I have a very small herd. <laughs> yeah, outside of my family and five kids. Yeah, he yeah, has a small kids, herd. Yeah, I'm kind of slow to learn. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't trade nothing though. They would trade him, but they might. Right. <laughs> they might. Um, I was trying to find the episode you had it on. But the reason why I got into your podcast originally was um, compassion fatigue. Oh, yeah. I was doing some, and that's one thing that, you know, here we're near the end, and I just bring up one thing I wanted to talk about because I forgot. <laughs> Brain injuries, right, John? <laughs> um, compassion fatigue, can you, in your words, describe what that is and how that affects especially our first responders and a little bit with veterans as well? Well, in their families, I mean... I was getting, would you hold your horse? Oh, wait, you don't like horses. Yeah, well, it's a, it's an interesting, to me, it's an interesting topic, right? Because I, what I don't know is if it's, I don't think there's a thing as compassion fatigue. I think there's a thing as overuse of cortisol in our brains, right? Like, I think, okay. the, I think the cortisol level in our brains rises to a point where it, it becomes a chemical problem more than a compassion problem, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. okay. Like, so for me, that's the kind of, kind of the gig and I'm still new in the field. So maybe, and my, I always have other counselors ask me like, don't you get tired of talking to people? Isn't this hard on you? And I'm like, mm, compared to what I used to do, this is not bad at all. <laughs> like I'm not picking up people's brains off the side of the street. Like this ain't bad. <laughs> Right. I'm just listening to their stuff and it's their stuff. It's not mine. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's a different kind of component. But I think that elevated cortisol level in first responders is the real issue. Right. How do we get rid of it? How do we use that vagus nerve, social interaction, connection and meditation or music or whatever it is to lower that level to not have <laughs> to not have that happen? Because that to me is the real that's the real detriment. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, I think we can all be compassionate all the time. I don't think we have to elevate our cortisol levels to do that. Right. So it's a it's trying to fight that part of your brain that does that, because I think even when you're tired and crappy and you don't want to do it anymore, you're still compassionate. But I think it's that that upper level of cortisol that's the problem. So if you've got the first responder out there that's just, you know, trying to make it to retirement, but has what you know, it's usually called compassion fatigue. Yeah. Um, what would be your recommendation for them? Go get counseling. Let's start there. Talk okay. to somebody, right? Mm -hmm. Talk to somebody and have them help you come up with some good coping skills, right? Some healthy coping skills. So the crappy ones we already know, right? right. The, 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 there's like three, right? John, the guy that drinks all the time, the right. guy that sleeps around on his wife, and the guy that works out, Yeah. right? 24-7 works out. Like, those are the main three <laughs> that right. we see, right? So find a good coping skill that works. Mm -hmm. Talk to somebody. Definitely go talk to somebody. Like, even if it's just a matter of, man, this one thing happened 20 years ago, and this is the only thing I'm struggling with, go talk to somebody. It's It's... What's frustrating for me is knowing there's people out there like that. And I know some personally that sure. will not go get help that need to. And man, just go do it. You're going to be nothing but better for it. 
better for you, better for your kids, better for your wife, mm-hmm. better overall, right? I mean, you've tried the substance use. you tried the sleeping around. Right. You've tried right. the, the working out. None of it's working. So let's try something that might be beneficial. Right. And, you know, and the same thing applies that we talked in last, uh, earlier in the last episode is find somebody that, you know, if the first one doesn't work, don't give up. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's important. And that's important to know. I think that's important for everybody to know. Like you might not connect with the person the first time or second time or third time. Or Keep looking. Don't quit quitting. Don't stop. Or right? 18th, 19th. Right. Keep looking. You'll find that one person that can do this, that can help. And maybe it's a matter of you need to be ready too, right? That's part of it. But man, just the fact of going and looking for somebody tells me you're there, right? Mm-hmm. You just right. got to find the right person. And if you give up, you're going to, the only thing you're going to hurt are the people around you too. Oh, for sure. Because that's where, you know, and I don't know how much time we have left to get into it, but that's where secondary trauma comes in. You know, it's the, and I know we've talked about it on the podcast before, but it's the trauma that affects those around you and they did not partake in the actual trauma. Right. Your, Your wife and kids or husband and kids did not ask for it. You know, and in my case, my my, my wife, uh, you know, we married after I was a cop. So, uh, well, actually, we, we were dating before I was a cop, but then we got married after. So she's seen, you know, to, to lightfully say that I'm not the same person she married, she's absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's not fair to her or our children, you know. And so, you know, and that's where we have to own our trauma when you say that. That's what it means to me is own it. This is some crap that you went through that doesn't belong on them. It's not their burden to carry. But it's not yours either. Go get the help yes. and get over right. it. Well, and you know, we're, and we're affecting it. those people too, John, in ways that we don't understand, right? So short temper. Right. Right? That's one of the ways. Or my, in my own personal experience was my anxiety about my kids not being home on time. Oh, God, it's through right? the roof, isn't it? Yeah. Oh. It's, so that was my thing, right? And I inadvertently made my daughter anxious because of it. Now, now that's gotten better right now. It, for a while it was so bad. She would be like, dad, don't worry. I'm going to let you know when I'm there or I'm going to let you know when I'm leaving. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm to the point now where I'm like, I don't have to do that anymore. Right. Like Mm -hmm. I don't there, my mental health is not their responsibility. Right. Correct. So I like that. Mm -hmm. Don't put your shit on them because it's not their job to take care of you. Maybe when you're 92 and you can't wipe your own butt, then it is. But until then, it's not, right? So, so yeah, don't put your stuff on them. So, for me, that was the thing, right? That was because I'd seen so many bad accidents. Now, I'll give you an example. So, my kid just went to, he graduated from Hillsdale College. He went there the other day. I didn't know when he left. I didn't know when he got there. I didn't know what he did. He did text me when he was on his way home, like the whole family as a group text because we were planning dinner. And I had no stress over it, right? right? So it's gotten better, but it takes work. Sure. It takes work. But you don't have to put that stuff on your kids and your wife. And that was one of the things. So my, mine was anger. Right? Oh, yeah. Um, for people that knew me 10, well, hell, even two years ago, I was just an angry bastard anyway, right? It, it just, that's who I was. Right. And when you finally realize where your life should be happy, but you're not, right? You have everything. 
I had an amazing wife. We had an amazing household. She took my children as her own. There was no reason that I shouldn't be happy, but I wasn't. And when the out, when the anger outbursts started happening more and more and more, and I was able to realize, like, shit, this is affecting my wife. This is affecting my kids. This has got to change. So I went and got help. You know, and, and one of the problems, I don't want to say it's a problem. So in, in an agency that I work in, you know, I'm open about all of this. And they're right. like, well, we can't believe you tell people that you go to counseling. Why? My job is to help end the stigma, right? So if I normalize this and say, right. look, you know. In You're the most healthy guy there, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. <laughs> the guys that aren't going are the ones that have to. They're it, the it, ones you should be worried about. Right. So, you know, and that's a whole other topic right there. Right. Um, but, you know, the, so when you finally start to get the help you need and you start to see your family heal, but now, you know, like my older children, you know, it's, it's like you said, you know, I, for un, unbeknownst to me, I put my mental health on them. Right. Now my oldest is 21, 18 and, and 14. And I start to see mental health issues in them. You know, and I've had a very honest, and this is stuff that parents need to do. You know, we always dread the birds and bees talk. To hell with that. That's easy. That's natural progression. The talk that nobody wants to talk about is mental health. Yes. So when you see these things uh, in your children, what are we doing to help them? So that in their, you know, we, you know, midlife crises, it's because people don't deal with their shit. And they come to a point in their life where middle of their life, they realize I got to deal with this stuff. And we should be having these talks with our children like anything else. To help prepare them. Yep. You know, when you're teaching your kids how to balance a checkbook, yes, people still use checkbooks. When you teach your kids, you know, simple things. How to Jared change will explain tire. that to you later. Right. <laughs> like, well, yeah. you teach them about the checkbook and they can teach you about Venmo. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> right. right. Exactly, John. Yeah. So I think I've got a text like that. It's a quicker way <laughs> to Jared. spend money. <laughs> right. You know, but those are things that, you know, again, help end the stigma. Talk to our kids. You want them to have an easier life. Yeah. Right? Easier than you had it. I want to leave this world better than than when I got here. Right. And, and that's just something that, you know, we talk about and uh, it's important. Uh, that it's not their burden to carry. And when you start to see it in your kids, maybe it's time to have the talk. It's already too late. Right? It's already too late, but it's never too late to have the talk to start getting help. Right. The one thing that this reminded me of is, you know, we I think I did a Wellness Wednesday on it a few months ago, was in February, or no, last month, was February with the anniversary I had. Mm-hmm. Yep. And... The one thing that I remember that my wife has done that completely shocked me, and I don't think I even told her, so, yeah, yeah maybe I got to tell her before. When you putting this out so I know <laughs> when to talk to her about it? <laughs> but she tells the kids that, um, I'm, I'm going to throw this mic at you, Jared. I, I'm about <laughs> to go get a wider microphone. <laughs> <laughs> I keep getting these, oh. A little bit, little bit more, little bit more. <laughs> but she tells the kids on February eighth, this is the day that Dad had some friends pass away, and she told you know, in, in part of it, you know, I, I don't want to say I feel ashamed of it, but I'm like that should have been my conversation. I'm not mad at her, 
but I never thought to have that conversation. Uh, she did. Yeah. And I'm grateful for it, but I'm like, oh, that that's a conversation I should have had with the kids. Right. Well, it's a conversation you can still have. And I have, yeah. Yeah. And I've sat them down and I said, yep, this day, you know, I haven't gone to, you know, they're young kids, so I'm, you know, I'm not going to go into all the gruesome details and right. probably never will, at least not in that type of setting. But, yeah, you know, it's okay to tell the kids, hey, mom or dad is having a little bit of an issue right now because something happened that was important to them. Right. That has affected them. And my, you know, my kids would come out to me. I think they came up like two or three times when I, in that morning. And when I got home from work, um, they would come up to me because I used to take that day off. Not for healthy reasons, but I used to take that day off just because right. I'm not dealing with it. I'm not, not going out. And now I'll still go to work. Does it affect me? Absolutely. Does it, you know, am I my best on those days? Not even close. But I'm progressing where I'm back at work on those days now. Yeah. And that's um, it. Not letting it impact you the way it did. That's that's the goal. Not let it impact you the way it did. And you'll still have times, even when you've dealt with this shit, you'll still have times where, man, something will strike you, right? Like just this last Christmas. Um, so my first two weeks on the job in Canton, house fire, I think six people died in it. A bunch of kids died in it. Um, so this last Christmas, and I think I was, I was an FTO at the time, me and another guy pulled the mother out of the front yard because she was about to run back in the house. It was just bad. Right. All bad. So this Christmas, I am i don't know why or what happened, mm-hmm. but it struck me, right? So I'm like, tell my wife, I don't know why, but for some reason, this house fire is on my mind. I'm struggling with it, right? And she's like, okay, thanks for telling me. So you can do those things. Mm-hmm. And it's important to have those conversations, you know, and that's, you know, it's, it's, if we can just be honest. Right. You know, people, I don't know why. So we always think of the beavers, right? Leave it to beaver. Leave it to beaver. You know, the cleavers. Don't go there. I know where you're thinking. Right. <laughs> leave it to Easy beaver. Easy, fellas. You can look it up on the, the old school TV stuff. But leave it to beaver is, you know, we had that perfect family in mind. Oh, yeah. You know, and that was so far from the truth. You know, not that we need something as dysfunctional as Roseanne, but it was, you know, Roseanne was more relatable than the, than the Cleavers were. Right. Yeah. Yep. And those are the talks. See, people think that they're messed up because we never prepared them properly to face life. You're going to have these things come up. Right. You know, uh, it, I remember the first time I found out my grandfather was an alcoholic. He had already been gone, you know, passed away 20 plus years. Right. And my mom had told me, you know, that my grandmother was scared to death of my grandfather and i was like how you know i'd spend the summers with him and it was great you know we'd ride our bikes to his brother's house and you know they'd play cards pinochle and all this stuff and i i just never saw it but he was a closet drunk Mm. i always remembered him getting a piece of stick who the hell keeps spearmint gum in their trunk (laughs) (laughs) right like that was it's usually a good indicator Right. At, at four or five years old, I thought gum naturally went in the trunk. I couldn't figure out why mom had it in her purse. You know, like, well, grandpa keeps this in the trunk. I had no idea. He was a World War II vet, you know, and the family had, had went into construction building bomb shelters during the Cuban Missile Crisis and all that. I'd never once thought that he was an alcoholic, you know, and it, 
that was the perception. You didn't let anybody know. Right. You don't talk mm-hmm. about those things. You know, but then right. when, you know, my mo- mom got remarried, she married an alcoholic. You know, and so you, you just felt that that was your new normal, like we said earlier. Right. You know, and, and no one had prepared us, me and my sisters, in life of, of or what life was going to give you. You know, our fucked up normal was normal. Right. It wasn't fucked up to anybody else, or it was fucked up to everybody else, just not us. Right. You know, and so I think that, you know, again, we have an obligation to our families and loved ones to, you know, mm-hmm. maybe we're not messed up, but you know what? We're having a rough time. Yeah. Life's not well, easy. And not just, I would even include, John, not just our families and loved ones, but society in general. Oh, absolutely. That's, so one of the other things Victor, Frank, Victor Frankl <laughs> says is, in finding meaning, and I've said this to several people over the last year, is maybe it's not what you want out of life, right. but maybe what life wants out of you. Sure. And that's a different perspective. That's a different way to look at it. And I like that, you know, we never mentioned this at all, but I like that you call it post-traumatic injury. It's an injury. It is an injury. And I like how it is put that way because if you've, you know, I've talked about that car accident. Um, you know, I could tell the guy was injured when I rolled up on the scene. He was moaning. His leg was not facing that way when he got up that morning. Um, you know, if we have a, it's not like, oh, just walk that off. You're okay. Right. If we have There's no walking right. that off. <laughs> right. There's no walking. Actually. Hobble that off. Um, you know, if there's a physical injury, it's easy to say, oh, I see that's broken. Let's help you fix it. But when it comes to our the hidden wounds of war or the hidden wounds that we have, that's where people just oh you're fine just right you know tell it to somebody who comes to you and they got a broken arm you know the next call for service you get John just tell them, right. hey you're you're fine don't worry about it it'll take not, care of itself I haven't been rode up in a while maybe I'll try that <laughs> <laughs> just walk it off just walk it off <laughs> and. You know, and that's the thing that gets me more and more that I get into this field and, you know, start healing myself as well, is it's an injury that needs to be dealt with just like a broken arm, just like a broken bone. Yeah, you've got to take the time to heal it or all it's right. going to do is going to get worse. Think about therapy as PT. Like if you blew right. your knee out, you'd be going to PT. Right. And every Absolutely. copper and firefighter or whoever would be like, yeah, I'm going to PT. Yeah. And it, nobody gives a shit. Right. right? Like, yeah, good. Hope yeah. you get better. Right. Why is this any different? It's sure. the same thing. It's PT for your brain. That's you know, and, and I would say that to even if there's any leaders or leadership listening to our podcast. I hope there is. Uh, you know, if you have an officer or a fireman or a medic that comes to you and says, I'm struggling, I'm getting help for it. So if, you, if you've seen my work kind of drop off, I'm getting it fixed. Don't blacklist them, for Christ's right. sakes. They're like you said. You, that's the one healthy person you got. Right. They know there's a problem, and they're getting help to fix it. Yep. I would be more concerned about the guy that's ah, no, that stuff don't bother me. Right. You're full of shit. Right. We've all got at least one call that will go with us to our grave. Mm-hmm. You know, and so you know, I, I that's part of ending the stigma is I want that to be normalized. Of not that everyone has to go to to therapy. Mm-hmm. Right. But if you need it. Don't be ashamed to take it. Right. Go. Right. So if you can say that I can keep work at work and home at home, if that's your motto, 
you're the first one that needs to look at his life and look right. around who's around you when you're not at work. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Without a doubt. Good talk, fellas. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much Thank for you. coming up here and spending Absolutely. time with us. <laughs> yeah. This is Anytime. one of those things that you could just, you know, it's spider webs. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it just, you find out how this involves your every portion of your life, whether it be your spirituality or lack thereof. Because there are some people that just, you know, there is no God, there is no anything. Well, there has to be something. There's got to be purpose behind your life. A purpose-driven life is what we're here for. Yep. And, uh, you know, when we pass away, we most people say, well, that's, you know, that's just Dusty's body. His, you know, he's already gone. Even if we're not... You've been talking to my wife lately? <laughs> <laughs> Even if we're not spiritual, we acknowledge that that's just a compartment. Yep. It's just we're, you know, Dustin is occupied for now. And, and you know, it's it's a shame when people just think of their body as that's who they are when really you're so much more than that. You know, mm-hmm. you have a, you have a spirit, you know, I know even if Dustin's body was broken and, and handicapped and disfigured and horribly mangled, <laughs> his mind is still there and that's who Dustin is. You know, that's his personality or that's his spirit, you know, and, and people need to realize that, you know, that, mm-hmm. that you can have a spiritual injury or the moral injury that we talk about and, that's what needs healed, you right? Know? Absolutely, not just your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Definitely got to find purpose. Yeah. Otherwise, why are we here? Right. Why, big deal. why keep going? Well, I was here because he said he had lunch ready. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that sounds like a great note to go out on. Yeah. Oh, geez, I gave that story right. and we're still recording. That's awesome. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, Chad. Yeah. Thank you so thank much you, for coming on. Uh, Sheepdog's mind. And uh, it's good, short, you know, and they're not like ours, you know, crazy right. and off, off hinged, <laughs> unhinged. But uh, no, we appreciate what you're doing. Um, He's international, me. helping people in India as well, we found out. Yeah, India, yeah. Russia, Pakistan. That's weird. Yeah. Hey, Thanks congratulations, me, Jared and Dustin. You know, I just want to give a shout out to us making it international. Yep. Right. Yeah. So we're here, here first. Some Stuff that's uh, in the works, if Jared ever replies back. Right, we'll be going um, to the United Kingdom. <laughs> I think we need to do an on-location to the UK. Well, we need to do an on-location to Hopewell first. So I'll yeah. give you guys a huge plug well, We show. appreciate I'll it. get a copy of your show, shoot it out to everybody, so they'll all listen to your show. So we'll If you weren't it. international, you will be shortly. <laughs> <laughs> so Surviving Jared. danger close. Yeah. yeah. Jared, take us on out. <laughs>